businessman and said, do you believe I can do it now? And the businessman said, well, of course I believe you can do it. I, I just saw you do it. And the tightrope walker said, no, no, no. Do you really believe that I can do this? And the businessman said, I certainly believe. So the tightrope walker, that keeps tripping me up. The tightrope walker said, all right, then, if you believe, get in the wheelbarrow. How many of you would get in the wheelbarrow? I know I wouldn't. I wouldn't get in a wheelbarrow on real drop, flat ground. I mean, but here's the thing about faith. Faith is not easy to have, but it is essential. And that's what we're going to learn from Abram's story tonight. As we continue this study of Abraham's life, we're in Genesis chapter 15, and as we read just a moment ago, we're going to be focused on the first six verses of this chapter. And, and I want you to go back to that text with me. Go back to Genesis chapter 15 and, and arrive there in verse 1, and let's talk for a moment about what's happening here. You'll notice in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1 that it begins with this statement, after these things. Now, now after what? Well, after the events of Genesis chapter 14, you may remember last week as we studied Genesis chapter 14, Abram mounted a rescue operation that saved Lot along with the rest of the inhabitants of Sodom who were taken captive by a coalition of eastern kings. And, and Abram, with his, his small band uh, of uh, uh, soldiers within his household and along with some uh, uh, allies he had, went and defeated this military coalition and brought back the captives. And so Abram accomplished something great in chapter 14. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, why would God need to instruct Abram to not fear? Now, I, I don't think God would have told Abram to not be afraid unless Abram was afraid of something. But what is it that Abram is afraid of? Maybe he was afraid of a counterattack. Maybe he was concerned that his newly made enemies would return for a retaliatory battle. But here's the thing. Abram wasn't afraid to pursue and fight that army to begin with. He knew what Melchizedek proclaimed in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 20, that God is the one who delivered his enemies into his hands. So it seems unlikely that Abram was afraid of a counterattack because he knew that God would fight for him, essentially. Maybe Abram was afraid of God's presence, of, uh, uh, of God, in the sense that God's appearance to people always struck them with fearful awe. I mean, throughout Scripture, God's presence frightened people. Such was the case in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and we're told that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Maybe Abram's afraid of God, in a sense. But this isn't the first time that God has communicated with Abram. There have been multiple communications since he left Ur at the end of Genesis chapter 11. So that doesn't seem likely either. I think the reason Abram is afraid is because he doesn't understand how God is going to fulfill this promise, this covenant he's made with him. At least that's what Abram communicates. If you look at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2, he says, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Think about it. A Abram didn't just arrive in Canaan. He had been there for a little while. We don't know exactly how long, but he, he had been there for a little while. He had left his home. He had left his country. He had left his inheritance. He had left his family. And the main thing that drove him 
were, were these covenant promises that God had made, one of which was the promise to make him a father. And here he is sometime later, and he is still childless, and, and, and the one who's going to inherit everything he has, because God has been blessing him. God has been blessing him, but the one who's going to inherit it is a servant that was raised in his house. It's not his own descendant. And so I, I sense that Abram is afraid because he doesn't understand how God's going to fulfill this promise. And maybe Abram's had some sleepless nights. You and I have been there. Sleepless nights worrying about something. Sleepless nights afraid about how something's going to turn out. Sleepless nights wondering where the solution's going to come from. And maybe Abram's been in that position and, and he's been staying up late pondering God's promise. Maybe he's stayed up thinking, what if I misunderstood what God said? Maybe what God really meant was I would have an heir like Eliezer. Maybe he didn't mean a specific child. Maybe he didn't mean a, a child that, that, that my wife and I gave birth to, but, but maybe he just meant an heir. Maybe he's justifying and reasoning in his mind something simpler than what God actually promised. Because here's the thing, a man... A man can always get married, but a man cannot always have children. So maybe he's looking for alternatives. And I think what happens here is that God, recognizing Abram's fear, recognizing Abram's concern, decides it's time to help Abram take his eyes off of the problem and focus them on the promiser. So here's what, Abr here's what God does. He takes Abram outside. And he has a visual aid set up, a visual aid that had been around for a long time. And he said, Abram, look at the stars. Can you count them? Because that's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how big your offspring is going to be. That's all God does. I'm fascinated by this. God simply takes Abram outside and says, look at the sky. And that's all it took for Abram. All it took for Abram. Abram was good after that. Because the crux of this passage appears in Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, where we're told that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. All it took was this visual aid of stars and Abram believed. How much does it take for you to believe what God has said? See, Abram sets a standard here in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 that is picked up on time and time again in the New Testament especially because three different times the New Testament authors are going to appeal to this very passage. And what we see is that a follower has to follow Abraham here. And I want us to consider tonight what we can learn from this particular account in Abram's life about following and I think it comes down to two major things. The first of which is that following necessitates belief. Now, you knew that. You knew that following necessitates belief. But, but I think as we look at this text that says Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, I think there are two very important things for us to understand about belief. And the very first thing we've got to understand about belief or about faith, I will use those terms interchangeably tonight, the first thing we've got to understand is that the object of your faith is more important than the volume of your faith. See, Jesus made this 
incredible statement in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. He said this, because of your, uh, he said this, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus said that faith as small as a mustard seed could move mountains in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. And what I think he means by that is that when you place your faith in God, you place it in a source that has unlimited power because God can do a lot with a little. Think about David for a moment. As a young shepherd, he went up against a giant with a sling and some stones. The giant was a trained soldier who had a sword, a shield, and a spear, and yet David defeated Goliath in battle, not because of his military expertise and not because of his advanced weaponry, but simply because God can do a lot with a little. Or think about the feeding of the 5,000. Here's this massive crowd who's hungry. And all that's available to the disciples to distribute is a few fish and a few pieces of bread. And that fish and bread becomes a buffet for thousands of people simply because God can do a lot with a little. The point is the object of your faith is more important than the volume of your faith. Because faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. And all too often we put our faith in, in, in things that disappoint. All too often we put our faith in little things. Maybe you put your faith in your financial portfolio and then when the stock market declines, you find out that that wasn't a good place to put your faith. Maybe you put your faith in your occupation and then when our nation hits a recession and people are being laid off, you find out that that's not a very good place to put your faith. Maybe you put your faith in a relationship, and then when that relationship comes to an end, you find out that that wasn't really a good place to put your faith. Or maybe you put your faith in a substance that seemed to bring you pleasure. But when that substance was no longer accessible, or that substance brought you into conflict with the law, or that substance became an addiction, you found, you found out that it wasn't a good place to put your faith. See, our greatest problem is that we put our faith in little things. We put great faith in little things. Anything made of this world is going to fail at some point in time. That's why we're called not to put our faith in the things that are seen, but in the one who is unseen. Because God can do a lot with a little. And the object of your faith is more important than the volume. That's one thing we can take away from this statement, that Abram believed God. But there's something else I think that we need to learn from this, about followers, the necessity of followers to believe. And that is that faith is more than believing in God. Faith is believing God. Now, I know at first it's hard to wrap your mind around the difference between these two. But to believe in someone is an idiomatic way of expressing belief in their existence. To believe in God is to believe that He exists, that He is real. And that's one thing you have to believe to be a follower. You have to believe in God 
But what Abram demonstrates here is that you have to believe him as well. Because to believe someone means that you accept what he or she says as valid, as, as accurate, as credible. What's so very interesting to me about this passage that probably I spent the bulk of my time looking into is that if you look at the English Standard Version or the New International Version of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, it simply says that Abram believed the Lord. If you look at the King James Version or the New King James Version or the New American Standard Version, the text says Abram believed in the Lord. I started to wonder, why is there a difference? Why does one translation say believe in and other translations say simply believe? And here's what I learned. In Hebrew, there's a word present in this passage that is typically translated in. However, the standard operating procedure of, of Hebrew to English translation says that when this word is used to introduce the object to a verb, it's to remain silent. It's, it's not to be translated. In other words, it serves as a marker that the word that comes next is the object of the verb that was just presented. And so one scholar summarized it this way. He said that in this case, the attempt to translate literally in reality leads to a distortion in the meaning of the Hebrew text because the Hebrew does not express a comprehensive belief system here with these words. Instead, it's referring to a belief of God, of what he says. Here's what helps in determining whether or not that word in really belongs. It's the three references to this passage in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, Galatians chapter, six, chapter 3 and verse 6, and James chapter 2 and verse 23, all quote this passage in the New Testament. That's three different authors quoting this passage in the New Testament. And if you go to that passage, or any of those three passages, Romans chapter 4 verse 3, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6, or James chapter 2 and verse 23, what you will find, no matter if you're reading the English Standard Version, the New International Version, the King James Version, New King James Version, or New American Standard Version, doesn't matter which one of those you're reading. All three passages in all of those major English translations simply quote this passage as saying, Abram believed the Lord. No in, just Abram believed the Lord. And I think there's something significant about that. We should understand that the phrase in question is a reference to taking God at His word more than anything else. It's believing that what God says will become reality. And we act on that belief. Now why does this matter? This matters because the question that followers must answer is not, not so much do you believe in God, because you can't become a follower unless you believe in God. But once you are a follower, the bigger question is this, do you believe God? Do you believe what he says? Because churches are full of people that believe in God, but they don't necessarily believe God. Let me explain what I mean. There are those who believe in God, but they don't give God financial priority. The reason they don't give God financial priority is because they don't believe God when he says to the Israelites in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10 that if, if you give me the 10%, I'll bless the 90 to the point that you won't have any more needs. And so there are individuals who, who come to worship, but they don't give God financial priority because they really don't believe what he says. 
And there are those who believe in God, but they don't believe what God says about sexual purity. And so they go through their life living in sin because they refuse to accept his standards when it comes to the sexual relationship. And they believe that life is about them being happy right now, not about them adhering to the commands of the Lord. And, and so they're choosing a lifestyle that contradicts the very words of God, the very teaching of God. And there are those who believe in God, but they don't believe what Jesus says about going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature. And they never talk to a neighbor. They never talk to a coworker. They never talk to a friend or a family member about God. And they go through their life never fulfilling the biggest command that we were ever get given. Because they believe in God, but they don't really believe God. Abraham didn't just believe in God. He believed God. And he structured the rest of his life around that belief. So when God said, take your son and offer him to me as a burnt offering, in Genesis chapter 22, what does Abram do? He believes God. So he does the one thing that I'm not sure I could ever do, and he takes his only child and prepares to kill him. And the book of Hebrews informs us that he did this reasoning in his mind that certainly God can bring my child back from the dead because my God has promised that this is the child through whom the covenant will be fulfilled. And so Abram believed God even when it didn't make sense. There's a big difference between believing in God and believing God. And Abram demonstrates that difference for us today. And here's the beautiful thing. Because Abram believed God, he received something he could never earn. And that's the second big point of the night. Following results in credit. Now, we need to note that the Bible doesn't say that nobody else believed God before Abram. Obviously, Noah did. Obviously, a guy named Enoch did. See, Abram's not the first to believe God, but for the first time, the Bible tells us what believing God results in. So look again at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. It says, And he, referring to Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, God credited righteousness to Abram's account because of Abram's faith. God did not count Abram's faith as righteousness because Abram's deeds and conduct deserve such a reward. In the chronology of Abram's story thus far, there is nothing meritorious about his conduct whereby he could achieve righteousness before God. Instead, righteousness was a gift bestowed upon Abram because of his faith. See, we've got to be real clear here. The Bible does not say you are saved because of your faith. God doesn't look at you and say, wow, look at that faith. That's amazing faith. You know what? That's faith that deserves to be rescued. You're not saved because of your faith. You're saved through your faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this not your, is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That passage is theologically deep because it says what saves us is God's grace. And it says, it says that the way we access His grace is through faith. And what happens when we access His grace is something that's called the great exchange. See, God does not accept faith as a substitute for righteousness, but here's what He does. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that He made Him, referring to Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God exchanges your sin for Christ's righteousness. When you, through faith, surrender your life to God, He takes His Son's righteousness and puts it on the credit side of your ledger. And He erases the debt side with blood. That's the only way men can possess the righteousness that God's righteousness requires us to have. But how do you how do you access that? If you back up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to verse 17, you'll see that the great exchange in which one becomes a new creation happens when one becomes in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is by being baptized into Christ. As Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 says. And when you make that decision, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29 says that you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see that faith that Abram had, that, that believing God aspect of his relationship that God credited to him as righteousness? That's available to you and I through our own belief, through our own faith, and through our own obedience as a result of that faith. And if we're willing to surrender to God's will, if we're willing to fulfill His plan of salvation, we too can be Abram's offspring, heirs of the promise he received from God. A fellow preacher uh, made an interesting observation about God's metaphors for Abram's descendants. He noted that back in Genesis chapter 13, God told Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. But then in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abram that his offspring will be numerous like the stars of the sky, and who can count them? So in one instance, God used dirt. In another instance, God used stars. And that preacher made the point that it's almost as if God was indicating that Abram was going to be the father of one nation with two different manifestations. An earthly nation comprised of the Israelites and a heavenly nation comprised of Christians. You know, when Peter referred to, Christ, to uh, Christians as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession... In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he was using language associated with the nation of Israel from Exodus chapter 19, which refers to Abram's biological descendants as God's treasured possession among all people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But there was one requirement for Israel to receive such designations. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5, we're told that, or the Israelites were told that in order to be God's treasured possession, to be God's kingdom of priests, to be God's holy nation, they had to obey his voice and keep his covenant. And that's still the standard today. 
The question each of us must ask ourselves is this, am I numbered with the stars? And the only way to be in that number is through faith. Do you believe God's word to the point that you're willing tonight to obey it? Are you willing to surrender to God, not just because you believe in Him, but because you believe Him? And when He says that salvation is available through the blood of His Son, do you believe it? That your sins can be removed in the waters of baptism, do you believe it? If you confess the identity of His Son, that you can receive salvation, do you believe it? Because it's all about believing God, just like Abel. Tonight, if you need to come to God through faith so that you can receive his gift of grace, the invitation is available. And we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. No tears in heaven.